that's k squared. That's omega squared. That's, that looks fine to me. Every time I take the derivative, I get a factor of i k in front. I took the derivative twice. So I have i squared, which gives me minus 1. I have k squared. Over here, I have an i squared, which gives me the minus, and an omega squared from taking the time derivative twice. OK, so I can say that in order for my trial expression to be a solution, this has to be true. k squared equals omega squared times mu epsilon. And k was just some, some value in my, it's just a parameter which scaled the uh, length coordinate. Omega was just a parameter that scaled the time coordinate. I can combine these exponents into a single argument. And I can recognize that as if this is an oscillating function, then as x increases by one wavelength, we expect this argument to increase by 2 pi. So that means that k has to be 2 pi over wavelength. And likewise, as the time increases by one period, that's by definition the time over which the, the uh, oscillation will repeat. So the argument has to increase by 2 pi. That means omega has to be 2 pi over a period. So the physical interpretation of what k and omega are can be thought of in terms of the wavelength and the period of a wave. And they can't just be arbitrary. You can't just have an arbitrary value for the period and an arbitrary value for the wavelength. They're related by this expression, which comes from the wave equation. So there's that expression. I can write this as omega squared over k squared is 1 over mu epsilon. I can write it as omega over k is the square root of 1 over mu epsilon. Just rewriting this uh, relationship I get from the wave equation. Now, in order to lend some physical interpretation to what this relationship means, let me plug in my values for omega and k, which relate these sort of abstract parameters to physical things that have some meaning to me, the wavelength and the period. So if omega is 2 pi over the period and k is 2 pi over the wavelength, then the ratio of omega over k has the 2 pi's canceling out. It gives me lambda over period, wavelength over period. So what this is, is this is how far the wave travels in one oscillation. This is how long it takes it to go through one oscillation. So this is the distance it travels in this length of time. So what is that? It's the speed of the wave. And we'll call that the phase velocity. Later on, we'll introduce another velocity related to the wave called the group velocity. So that's the phase velocity. That's how fast a particular phase front, and that's what we have here. This is a, this is a uh, trial solution to the wave equation. It's one particular frequency wave, how fast that's propagating 
uh, through a system. And what I see is if I now relate that back to this, the phase velocity, the rate at which the wave is propagating through a system, depends on the material properties of the system, mu and epsilon, right, which we said could be measured from static measurements. So you can measure the speed of light by doing completely static measurements, which is kind of neat. So in free space, mu is mu naught. By definition, that's mu naught is the value of mu in free space. Epsilon is epsilon naught. And the speed of light in free space, we give the special letter c to, because that's a constant, from the fact that mu naught and epsilon naught are constants. And that constant looks like 2.9997 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. One day I'm going to learn all nine digits. Um, for our purposes, we'll always be able to use 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. You have to go to uh, four significant digits before this is not an accurate expression for the speed of light. So it's easy to remember, 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. And it comes from Maxwell's equations. Okay, so what we just found was one possible solution to the wave equation. This was a solution in one dimension. It's a wave propagating along x, moving along x as a function of time. And we would call this a plane wave, meaning you were to look at different heights or positions in y or z you'd have the same expression for the electric field that you had along y or z equals 0. So this solution is translationally symmetric. There's no y or z dependence. So any waves that are propagating outwards propagate out as, as planes in space. Okay, so we call that a plane wave solution. And we can write any arbitrary wavefront as the sum of plane waves. So this is one possible solution. There are, if you have different wavelengths and different periods, you can have other solutions that satisfy the same expression. Okay, so if you had some arbitrary, let's say, pulse of light, you could describe that as being composed of many different frequencies through Fourier decomposition which we will do later on. We're not going to do that today, but you can describe any arbitrary time dependence of a function as the sum of sinusoidal uh, components. Each sinusoidal component would be one plane wave. Okay, so we've described how one particular frequency plane wave propagates, but every frequency 
plane wave can also propagate in the same mechanism. And any arbitrary wave can be described by the sum of multiple frequency components. Okay, there's other, so we call that a basis set. Plane waves are a basis set for wave propagation. There are other basis sets. There are cylindrical waves, spherical waves. We talked a little bit about spherical waves when we did Huygens' principle. We said that a wavefront, as it propagates through space, you can think of it as being composed of a bunch of little point sources, each producing a circular or spherical ripple. And those ripples add constructively to produce a wavefront at a later point in time. So let's look at spherical solutions to the wave equation. This wave equation written in this form is um, coordinate system neutral. Right? If we want to choose a spherical coordinate system, then we have one particular expression for the Laplacian that's different than what we have in Cartesian coordinates or cylindrical. So for example, the Laplacian in spherical coordinates has a radial dependence that looks like this. It's not just the second derivative with respect to r. Okay, so let's consider in spherical coordinates, and let's consider this, um, this form of the electric field. We can motivate this by looking at first a, uh, we have a sinusoidal oscillation in space and time, which is what we had over here. Okay, so we're keeping that part of our solution. We have a, an oscillation. And we have an amplitude which is decaying as 1 over r. For the plane wave solution, the amplitude was constant in space. This one's decaying as 1 over r. How can we justify that? So let's say we have a point source that's emitting a certain amount of power. What happens to the irradiance of that point source, the power per unit area, as you get further and further away from the point source? Right. It diminishes because it's getting spread out over a farther area. It diminishes as 1 over r squared, because the surface area, if you integrate it over the entire uh, sphere over which it's radiating, the irradiance integrated over that area always has to be the total power being irradiated. So the surface area of a sphere scales as r squared. So the power drops as 1 over r squared as you get further and further away. Well, the power is proportional to the electric field squared. So the electric field has to drop as 1 over r. Okay, so we can motivate both parts of this solution, and then we can try it by plugging this solution in up here. Okay, the time dependence of the solution is exactly what we had before. I mean, this, this 1 over r is just a constant in time. So the right side of this equation is exactly what we had before. And it will just be minus omega squared mu epsilon times our, our trial solution. The left side, we have to consider what that Laplacian looks like in spherical coordinates. And because we have a spherically symmetric function, I don't need to consider the terms which depend on the derivative with respect to theta or phi, because there is no change in this function with respect to theta or phi. So I got lazy and I didn't type them out. But the Laplacian in spherical coordinates actually has this term, which is a radial term plus a theta term plus a phi term. And we know those theta and phi terms are going to be 0. So we only need to evaluate this one. So let me do that over here. First, I take 
and multiply my, my function by r. And what that does is that just gets rid of my 1 over r. And then I take the second derivative, which gives me the minus k squared times my original function. And then I have to multiply that by 1 over r. times e to the i k dot r minus omega t. Thank you. And I should probably you know, allow for this to be arbitrarily scaled. I should put an e naught in there. I didn't on the slides, but all that would do is add a constant. OK, well, I can recognize this term here as my original function. So I'm basically reproducing what I said I could have done as a shortcut. Anytime I see the del operator, I can replace it with ik if I'm operating on a phasor. And since I have del squared, I have ik squared, which is minus k squared. So I get the exact same relationship. I get on the left side minus k squared, on the right side minus omega squared mu epsilon. So I have the same relationship and the same analysis holds. This will be a wave that will propagate at a speed which is given by material properties and in free space is C. Okay, so the wave equation holds for plane waves, holds for spherical waves. That's probably not surprising. I said any wave can be described as a superposition of plane waves. So you could describe a spherical wave as the sum of a bunch of plane waves. So spherical wave can be thought of as a plane wave going this way plus a plane wave going this way interfering to produce a spherical wave just like a bunch of spherical waves can interfere to produce plane waves Huygens principle said a bunch of spherical wavelets produced by a series of linear point sources would produce a plane phase front after it's propagated to distance in time Okay, so I can describe any arbitrary wave function in terms of spherical waves or in terms of plane waves. They're both solutions to the wave equation. And we'll do more with, uh, with the decomposition of, of waves into those basis set in future chapters. Okay, well, there it is for you if you want the full defined speed of light. Um, now, that's the speed of light in vacuum. In a material where epsilon is not equal to epsilon naught, then the speed of light will be different, or the, the phase velocity will be different. Right? And so we can write the relative permittivity of a material. We can write how big epsilon is relative to epsilon naught. And we use kappa, often called the dielectric constant. 
to be that the number of times larger the permittivity is in the material than in free space. And it will always be larger. It will never be smaller. And likewise, mu sub r is the relative permeability of free space. It's how much larger the permeability is than in free space. And for all the materials we're going to deal with, mu sub r is 1. Okay, So what that means is we can write the phase velocity as c divided by square root of kappa times mu sub r. Right, if, if epsilon is larger than epsilon naught, then k is greater than 1, and the phase velocity should be smaller. If epsilon is greater than epsilon naught, we've got a larger value in the denominator, and the phase velocity then is smaller. <coughs> smaller by the square root of that quantity. That's where our square root comes from there. So this term here, this uh, square root of kappa mu r, tells us how much slower light travels in a material than it does in free space. And that's a very useful parameter for us, so we give it a name. That's the index of refraction. It's the index of refraction, we've already dealt with this, but it comes from the material properties. Um, and for our purposes, it comes entirely from kappa, the uh, dielectric constant of the material. So we can ask, what's the physical interpretation of n? As I already kind of said, the most common interpretation. n is how much slower the light travels in a material than it does in free space. Glass is an index of 1.5, so light travels one and a half times slower in glass than it does in, in free space. But it's worth asking, what happens when n is complex? If n is the square root of some term. That could be a complex number, right, if that term is negative. So if it's complex, what do the real and imaginary parts mean? And in fact, in general, n is complex. I know there's a few people in the class who know the answer, or at least who have seen this before. So let me rewrite my expression for a plane wave. This was my expression for a one-dimensional plane wave. You can use plus or minus. It doesn't matter. It just affects the direction the wave is going. Well, if I said omega over k is the phase velocity of light, the phase velocity is c over n, then I could write that k equals n times omega over c. And I could further write that as n times k naught. If k naught is the wave vector in vacuum, or the wave vector that I would have if the index of refraction were 1, and the k vector in a material is n times larger than that. Okay, so I can, this k here is going to be a function of the material. 
I can write it instead where the material dependence is included in this n, and then I write the free space wave vector k0. Thank you. OK, so now I'll ask again, what happens if the index is complex? What if it's completely imaginary? What does the imaginary part do? Yeah, it changes the amplitude. If I plug in an imaginary number here, that i times this i gives me a negative. So let me say n has a real part. I'll call it n prime. And an imaginary part, which I'll call n double prime. Then I can write this as e to the i n prime k naught x plus or minus omega t times e to the i times i n double prime k naught x. So this is just a sinusoidal oscillation in space and time. This, i times i is minus 1. And that's an exponentially decaying term, which is part of the amplitude. So it's not part of the oscillation. So e naught times this gives me the amplitude of this oscillating term. And so it's an exponential decay of the amplitude. If the index of refraction is complex, the material absorbs. That's what that says. And we often see the law for absorption written as it's called Beer's Law. Good one to celebrate. It can be written in this form says that light going into an absorbing material has an amplitude as a function of its depth in the material that decays exponentially. And this parameter alpha is called the absorption coefficient. And it's a parameter that you could look up for a particular material. Well, we can now relate that over here to our expression for the electric field. The irradiance is proportional to the electric field squared. So we have to square this expression before we can relate it to this. Okay, when we square the expression, I get e to the minus 2 n double prime k naught x. So I can say minus 2 n double prime k naught x is equal to minus alpha x. So the x cancel, minus signs cancel. This tells me that a complex part of the index of refraction gives rise to an absorption. Milton? So uh, 
Well, we're transferring it into the material. Into the material. There has to be material here in order to have. There has to be a material in order to have n not equal to one. That material has to have charges in order to have a complex part of this index of refraction. Those charges are being pushed around by the electromagnetic wave. Okay, so, it's not so the energy is not lost. It's just lost from the electromagnetic field. It's transferred to the matter. Into the matter. So you get, um, in the quantum mechanical picture, you get atoms being stimulated into higher energy levels. Um, actually, for a mirror, alpha is very high. It's very absorbing, but it's it's also very conductive. And so, the bound. Well, later on, we'll look at boundary conditions of Maxwell's equations to see how a reflected wave gets generated. But you can say this: if light can transmit through a material without much loss, then you know that it has low absorption and the index of refraction is primarily real. So for glasses, for air, for free space, all these things, we will neglect the, when we state an index of refraction, it will just be a number. It'll be a real number. Say the index of refraction for glass is 1.5. Treating that as entirely real. Okay, so If the speed of light is omega over k, and that's the index of refraction times the velocity, the phase velocity, then as light goes between different materials, the index of refraction that it sees will change. That means either its frequency or its wave number have to change, or both. Right? If the left side of this equation is changing, the right side of that equation has to change. Right, so which is it? Okay. Yeah. So I have a little diagram that shows that. Right. This is let's say air, this is glass. Light's traveling slower in the glass than it is in the air. You see it slow down. That's what causes the wave fronts to be compressed. But we're con- we're required to have this electric field be continuous at the boundary. And that means that the rate at which um, the field on the left is oscillating back and forth has to be the same as the rate that the field on the right is oscillating back and forth. So omega, or the frequency on the left and the right, have to be the same. What changes, it's obvious from this picture that the wavelength changes. As the wave slows down, it gets compressed. If the wavelength changes, that changes k. So omega, the frequency of a wave, is determined when the wave is produced. It comes out of a laser, it comes out of the sun, it comes from a light bulb, wherever it comes from. There's a particular frequency associated with the wave. That doesn't change um, when it goes between materials, but the, the wavelength can. The wavelength, the wave number, k.
OK, a couple other important properties of electromagnetic waves that can be derived from Maxwell's equations. Uh, we have this solution for a plane wave. And we know that, in Gauss, that due to Gauss's law in free space, the divergence of the electric field has to be 0. So the divergence of the electric field is rho over epsilon. In free space, rho is equal to 0. So for a plane wave propagating in free space, we can impose this condition on this solution and see what we get. So if we take the divergence of this solution, then we have the, uh, I should probably write this out. Our solution for a plane wave looks like e naught x plus e naught y plus e naught z times e to the i kz plus or minus omega t. This term right here is a sinusoidal oscillation. This amplitude is a vector. The electric field is a vector. So the amplitude of the, or the value of the electric field has to be a vector. So this has a direction associated with it. So I can write it in terms of an x component, a y component, and a z component. And now when I take the gradient of this, that means I take the x derivative of the x component the y derivative of the y component and the z derivative of the z component. And so I get you can't read what I'm writing right now. Yet I write it nevertheless. I have to take the derivative of this x component, the derivative of the y component, the derivative of the z component. I wrote a function that's only changing as a function of z. I said there were plane waves. They were independent of x and y. So I know that or I wrote that as a function of z. All right, so the derivatives with respect to x and y should be 0, have to be 0. So the divergence of E only has a term which depends on the z component for my particular solution. And Gauss's law in free space tells me that it has to equal 0. Well. The only way that's going to equal 0 is if this amplitude is 0, if, if the z component of the electric field is 0. Because if it's not, let's just say this is a constant. When I take the derivative, I get an ik times my original function. Or if this is any function that depends on, on, on position, then I, get, I have to use a chain rule, but I end up getting some function over here which is not going to be 0. So evidently, the z component of the electric field has to be 0 for a wave propagating in the z direction. 
And I can do the same argument in x and y, or just rotate my coordinates to say that a wave propagating in x has to have no component in the electric field in x. What that means is the wave is transverse. The electric field can only be transverse to the direction of propagation. That comes from the solutions to our wave equation, which assume the medium was isotropic. Glass, air, vacuum. Turns out that doesn't hold in crystals. You have a question, Nakit? No. It can be plus or minus. That could be plus or minus. It doesn't propagate as a wave. It won't. Our solution for self-propagating waves required they be transverse. This is this is this is a result. In order for an electromagnetic wave to propagate as a wave, it has to be transverse. That's true for plane waves. We can show that it's true for spherical waves as well. I'll just sort of I'm not going to work out. Um, all the steps that are in the slide. But here was our solution for spherical waves. If we apply Gauss's law in free space, we now have to take the uh, spherical form of the divergence, which, again, consult your vector calculus textbook. Uh, it looks like this. Now, our expression for the electric field had no phi or theta dependence. So the derivative with respect to phi or theta is going to be 0. Those two terms are zero. And we only need to concern ourselves with the radial derivative of the radial component of the electric field. So here is that radial derivative of the radial component of the electric field. And again, the only way that can be zero is if that radial component is zero. If it's not, when you take the derivative of r squared, you get a finite value have a finite value equaling 0. So the radial component has to be 0 for a radial wave. And so a spherical wave propagating outwards can't have part of the electric field pointing away from the source. That's the same, same result. OK, so we've talked about the electric field. We talked a little bit about the magnetic field, because we had, had to do that in order to drive the wave equation although we're generally expressing quantities in terms of the electric field. But anytime we have an electric field, we also have a changing magnetic field. Um, they're both transverse to the direction of propagation. So we just showed that the electric field was transverse to the direction. I could also derive, through the exact same steps, a wave equation for the magnetic field and look at Gauss's law for magnetism and show that the magnetic field is also transverse. So if the electric field and the magnetic field, A, are both perpendicular to each other, because they're related by the curl of each other, so E and B are perpendicular to each other, and they're both transverse to the direction of propagation, that means that the electric field and the magnetic field are, and the direction of propagation, form a uh, what do you call it when you have three vectors mutually orthogonal? An orthogonal basis for a coordinate system, if you like. 
Okay, so that's the first thing that uh, we need to point out to describe the pointing vector. The second is that the irradiance is a quantity which is proportional to the electric field squared. We saw that just a moment ago. I had an expression for the electric field that I had to square in order to relate it to irradiance. Well, the electric field is proportional to the magnetic field. And the electric field squared is proportional to the irradiance. So electric field times magnetic field, their magnitudes, should be proportional to irradiance. Their cross product, the electric field crossed with the magnetic field, since they're perpendicular, should give me a vector which is mutually perpendicular. The direction which is mutually perpendicular has to be the direction of propagation. That's the only direction which is mutually perpendicular to E and B. Putting all that together, I can define a quantity called the pointing vector as proportional to E cross B. So the direction of that pointing vector is in the direction of propagation. And I can choose these constants of proportionality such that its magnitude is the irradiance. Okay, so the pointing vector, which is c squared epsilon naught e cross b, tells the direction that power is flowing and the amount of power per unit area. It is. So that's sinusoidal. A couple things. We have one sinusoidal component times another sinusoidal component that are in phase. It's like sine squared. So this is going to oscillate between zero, and, between zero and some maximum value. So its average value is going to be half of its maximum value. So if you were to plug in the amplitude of the electric field and the amplitude of the magnetic field, you get the amplitude of the pointing vector. And half of that would give you the average irradiance. So this is an expression for the instantaneous irradiance. And you'll often see an expression that has a 1 half here. And that would be, if I put brackets around this to represent a time average, that would be the average irradiance and direction. A couple other parameters. that are relevant in describing the light. One is polarization. I touched on this here when I wrote out the amplitude as a vector. Well, the electric field, the magnetic field, those are vectors. They have direction. And so light can have particular polarization, can have particular direction for its electric field to point. And since it's a transverse wave, the electric field can point in any direction that is transverse to the direction of propagation. Okay, so light going from the ceiling down, kind of an electric field that's pointed anywhere in the horizontal plane. The magnetic field would be perpendicular to that, also in the horizontal plane. We'll deal a lot with polarization again in later chapters, but just uh, since we're introducing it now, I'll mention that you can describe the amplitude of a wave in terms of how large its amplitude is for x polarization and how much of it is in y polarization, say if it's propagating along z. 
or light coming from the ceiling pointing down. The polarization could be in any direction, but I could describe how much of it is, say, pointing that way, how much of it is pointing that way. We have a different amplitude for the two different polarization states. Each one is going to propagate as a wave. And the total electric field would be the sum of those two waves, one polarized in x, one polarized in y. You can show that graphically. You can represent the amplitudes. This isn't a phasor picture. This is not the complex plane. But if light is propagating in the z direction, then the electric field can be polarized anywhere in the xy plane. It's polarized along x. We would call that horizontal. Polarized along y, we would call vertical. And any arbitrary polarization state could be described as some fraction along x and some fraction along y. And we'll introduce all sorts of interesting polarization states later. You'll often hear about light being unpolarized. And it's worthwhile just to mention what that means. Light is a transverse propagation of the electromagnetic field. So the electric field has a direction. It's a vector. Therefore, it has a polarization. So there's really no such thing as unpolarized light. When you hear the term unpolarized, what it means is the polarization is rapidly changing in time. It's not constant. So most sources of what we call natural light are unpolarized. So the sun, for instance, is made up of a hot gas. Hot gas is vibrating. right? That's what the, makes it hot. Those vibrating charges emit radiation. If you have a charge oscillating up and down, the radiation it produces is going to have an electric field that's vertical. Okay? If that vibrating charge bumps into its neighbor, it might get kicked, and now it might vibrate horizontally and produce horizontal radiation. Then it bumps into its neighbor, and it's vibrating in a different direction. So the direction of polarization keeps changing. And so at any instant, you could add up the electric field produced by all the different point sources producing the light, and this blue line represents that sum. And, and yes, this is, not, this is actually the vector sum of all these little small vectors. But if all those vectors are changing the directions randomly in time, then their vector sum is also changing randomly in time. And if this is happening on the nanosecond scale, and you observe the light over the course of microseconds or milliseconds, which most detectors would, this just all washes out. You don't see any net effect due to the polarization. Mark? The magnitude's the same no matter what's the angle, or does it change the Well, the term unpolarized light would suggest that um, the magnitude of the electric field is constant in all directions. If you take a filter, a polarizing filter, you look at, say, the sun, you rotate it, you're not going to see any change in the amplitude of the sun. So we're going to deal a lot more with polarization later on. This is just a very short introduction. Gregory? Yeah. But your eye can't respond fast enough, nor can a CCD or any other optical detector that, almost any other optical detector. Might be a few ways to do it. OK, so Maxwell's equations result in traveling waves. They're transverse. It's very important. And they move at a speed, which is a function of the material properties. We relate that, those material properties to the speed through the index of refraction. We've already used that quite a bit. We'll use it a lot more. Um, I mentioned that if it has a complex part, that gives rise to absorption. But for the most part, unless we explicitly talk about uh, the complex part or about absorbing materials, we're going to deal with materials where n is real, and that just gives us uh, a rate of propagation in the material.